Rangers fans, welcome to the best Rangers podcast in town. I am Andrew Chelney alongside Nick Zararis, and we are Liberty Blue. We scream about the Rangers so that you can save your voice. That's how deeply we care about you, and we appreciate that you've joined us for the ride. This is episode two, and we are live on Twitch. We'll put the full video up on our YouTube, which is Liberty Blue Pod, and the audio version will also be available uh, as an audio podcasts on iTunes and Spotify and and all that great stuff. Nick, we have video. How's this? How's that? We are not cavemen, SpongeBob. We have technology. Absolutely. I we well, we can see each other now and and the people can see us and now we've we've added this element to the podcast. So now we we're doing audio, video. I mean, soon we're going to be doing movies that clearly I will not be watching because I don't watch movies. Uh, but we we're we're multifaceted here on on Liberty Blue. That's the goal, man. Give something for everybody. Where if you don't have the attention span for a full hour podcast, okay, we can work with that. We can pull out the best forty five second clip for you, so you can see it on Instagram. So you get the important, you get the the key tidbits because we understand every type of media is for a different person. Andrew was just talking about before that he doesn't have the attention span for movies, but. You can find a way to tap into any type of audience. And that's an important part of being a good creator is being able to be flexible and give people what they want. Uh, We have a really good rundown of topics for today's show, a bunch of different things. We'll open it up a little bit. It won't only be Rangers today because we're going to talk a little bit about the cup final in relation to the Rangers and a few big picture things. So the first thing we have on our handy dandy rundown here is just... And a way to view the NHL offseason. I know there's the cup final still going on, but the reporting cycle has vividly and rapidly overtaken the bulk of the hockey insider timeline. And the first thing to touch on here is anytime you read a report, even if it is from somebody like a Frank Saravelli, an Elliot Friedman, a Darren Dreger, etc., you need to be mindful of what they are reporting, and who it benefits. This is something where you really got to think about it. When you hear something like sides aren't particularly close or there is a lot of interest, you have to think about who that report is benefiting. Because for the most part, these insiders are reporting what people give them. They are not actively hot on the trail. They're they're not meeting in parking garages like in all the president's men. There is a clear-cut system here of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, where if an agent gives an, a reporter something, then later on down the line, the reporter will give the agent something back. So that's the starting point, because the one that really jumped out to me was Kevin Weeks reported that the Devils and Jesper Brett hadn't even really been particularly close in their contract negotiations. And then the new guy who just got hired by NJ.com in the last two weeks, to be the first full-time Devils beat reporter in like two or three years, which is important and good because we should be supporting local journalism because the, that kind of boots on the ground stuff is where you get good information. And he reported that the Devils and Brett had indeed been having contract negotiations. So you really got to have an understanding of where the information is coming from, who benefits from it, and whether or not you should believe certain things. Because uh, the big thing with the hockey offseason, a lot of this stuff is just content. It's not news. And there's a difference. Being able to determine the difference between content, which is things like trade rumors, trade bait lists, and teams are working on X, is an important delineation, demarcation point that I think we, as hockey content people, need to do a better job of explaining to people because there are a lot of people who don't realize the difference between that. 
Yeah, I think the one thing that we have to keep in mind here is that the NHL does not have a Woj and it does yes. not have a Shams. And the, it's a very important thing to, to understand here because Woj and Shams know everything about everybody in the NBA. They know objectively what's going on, what people had for breakfast, what they're going to have for lunch, who they're meeting for dinner. They know everything about everybody. With the NHL world, it's vastly different because the the checkmark insiders, most of them, a lot of them are in the back pockets of GMs and teams. And the teams and, and GMs and these and these, you know, the, the sources will give these insiders information with 17 stipulations yes. and all these things with all these strings attached. And you know, that's the way the NHL runs. It's very important that we understand the difference and do the insiders still do a great job yeah for the most part they're 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 breaking the news they're still putting that information out there they have to vet that information there it's um, you know it's it's not a knock against them in particular but a lot of times they're they're not the woes the shams like there there have been trades during the trade deadline during the draft during other other situations where they will just quote tweet the official Team. trade. <laughs> they will just quote tweet an official graphic already made by the team. And then they'll be like this. And then they'll have like a finger emoji pointing down to it. It's like, dude, like you're the insider. You should be doing this. Why is the team account beating you to this? There should be no world in which that happens. First, if you're an insider, you should be having that information first. Again, if you're, if some team is trading, the 2027 seventh rounder for whatever, then it's not that big of a deal. But in terms of bigger trades, you, the checkmark people should be on top of this and you shouldn't be quote tweeting teams, but that's, you know, this is, this is a fight. This is a fight that I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to win in the, in the NHL. It's not because there are so many people who just love this kind of content. And as a fan, I understand it. This is the most exciting stuff aside from the game. It's a long summer and trade rumors and free agency buoy a lot of people's free time. There's a reason that is the most engaged with content year round. It can be very far away from the trade deadline or the draft and trade rumor content will always do well. It's the reason there are 1900 anonymous NHL rumors accounts that are just throwing darts at the wall and one out of every 12 they get right they can say hey i got this right well you're just guessing based on the information that everybody else has that's not reporting and there is a difference between speculation and reporting which is another part of this and the last thing i want to touch on in this part of the conversation before we move on the team's use the insiders, the agents use the insiders, and they very clearly can pit them against each other. The most obvious one is when Marner was negotiating that extension with the Leafs, what was that, three, four years ago now, where every single day, Darren Dreger would tweet something along the lines of, Leafs and Marner are close, not done yet, and you can very clearly tell he had just gotten off the phone with Mitch Marner's dad and wanted to tweet a li an update as soon as he got one. That's the thing. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying don't believe the insiders because those are reporters. They do have sourced information. It's that you need to take what they report with a grain of salt sometimes, especially when they say things like, we'll see, or we'll see what happens. What do you mean yeah, we'll see what happens? Yeah. You're the insider. Right. You should be telling us what's what's going to happen. You yeah. should know these things. Yeah. I I have never seen Wozier Shams or any no. of or any big NBA insider say, "We'll see what happens." Cuz they <laughs> they know. 
Oh, yeah. they know. And they'll let us know as soon as they know. And this, this we'll see what happens or, you know, wait and see, or yeah. we're, we're, I'm just going to quote tweet a team's official graphic because again, they have a graphics person that is making the graphic because the trade has already happened. They already know it's going to happen. So how does the graphics guy know before you do? You're the insider. But that's, you know, that's where it's that we're, we're fighting a battle that, like I said, I don't know if we're going to win. No, it doesn't seem like it. And the NHL media is the one that's kind of, it's a little bit too close to the sport, which is the thing I've really noticed over the years, especially because I watch the other ones too. And you get a weird vibe from the relationship between the media and the teams in hockey, especially that where it's just kind of like, why don't you care more than this? Why are you so like willing to just tow whatever line someone gives you as opposed to being a little bit more assertive? And I'm not going out and saying there in the other sports, that isn't the case. There are plenty of people more than happy to just be stenographers in every sport, but just hockey in general, the energy is just so weird where it's always like this GM's trying his best. And it's like, is he though? Yeah. Is he really? He's not your friend. Like, I know you might be friends personally, but you're a professional. You have an obligation Mm -hmm. to report the truth. Not that your friend who you go to dinner with whenever you're in that particular city is having a hard time. It's it's frustrating. As a fan who just wants to see as many teams be competitive as possible, it's very frustrating that the hockey media is so kind of complicit in just letting things happen. Yeah, I... I, again, I'll revert to Woj and Shams because I work in basketball media. Like I've I've been around people. Like I I know how things go down in the NBA. I've never seen Woj or Shams defend a move by saying the GM is trying their best. I have never yeah. seen that, and will never see that for as long as they have their jobs. Like yeah. these things just don't happen. They report the information as they get it, and that's it. If someone six weeks from now is going to meet some other person for lunch, Woj and Shams will know about it and they will then decide whether or not to post that on their social media slash ESPN slash the athletics slash wherever else they post. Right. Like you will never see other other sports as big insiders say, oh, you know, this GM is is trying their best or, you know, wait and see. Maybe maybe this happens or maybe it won't. Yeah, those are the two options. Thanks. <laughs> those those are indeed the two options. Either this thing will happen or it won't. Thanks. Appreciate the the inside information. So speaking of transactions and things that have happened since our last episode, the Rangers did go out and they made three roster additions. Well, not really additions, but they re-signed people. So we'll start with the the most interesting one, which is they got Vitaly Kraftsov in a room with the Rangers and made it uh, made the relationship amenable enough that he was willing to sign a contract and say, I'll come back and play in New York. It's a very long way till August and September when training camp will begin and we can actually see what that'll look like. But at face value, the fact they got him back is a good sign, partly out of desperation because they desperately need a right wing who has some top six ability. But at the very least, they're not being stupid. They could have very easily just said he didn't want to play for us. okay, and let his rights go and he could have signed with someone else. But the Rangers were able to paper over that problem, over that situation. And now there is a little bit of optimism about Kraftsov coming back and being an impactful player, which he was drafted to be in the top 10. It's very similar to what Edmonton did with Yessi Puglia-Yarvi, where yeah. they, they, it's an early draft pick. 
they played him very early in his career and it did not work out to say the least. The, the there is there is no traction there. Yesi Puliyarvi was very frustrated vehemently. And there is not a whole lot of ice time, not a whole lot of puck time. Like there is just nothing there for him when he was there the first time. Then he left. And the expectation was that the Oilers were going to trade him for pennies on the dollar because the relationship was non-existent. There was no intent for Puliyarvi to return to Edmonton. And yet here we are, fast forward to June 20th of 2022. And yes, he Puliyarvi just finished a season with the Oilers. He's back. They had a long playoff run and he's in an Oilers jersey. And to my knowledge, there's no intent to move him. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll see. It could happen or it could not happen. <laughs> Who knows? But to the, the, the trade talk for Puliyarvi has died down by a considerable amount. So the same thing is happening with Kravtsov, where he was a ranger for a little bit of time. He didn't get the ice time he felt he deserved. He didn't get the, the opportunities that he felt he deserved. And so he left. And now, the, the again, the trade rumors were, okay, well, Kravtsov is going to get traded, and then we'll see what's going to happen, and this, this, that, and the other. And just like in Edmonton, okay, well, Kravtsov is open to returning. I would imagine that he will come back. I don't they expect him to get traded at the draft or during free agency. I mean, again, it could happen or it could not. I guess give me the check mark and call me an insider because these two possibilities are on the table. But to, to my understanding is that Kravtsov will be back as a Ranger next season. And we'll see. I mean, Puli Yarvi had a, had a decent season with Edmonton after coming back. And hopefully Kravtsov can do the same for the Rangers. I mean, he played all of 20 games last year. He got in in the 56-game season. He played all of 20 games. He played mostly fourth-line minutes. The only forwards he played with, I wrote this down because he only played with five different forwards. He played with Kevin Rooney, Brett Howden, Heedle, and Strom. Those were the only forwards he had ice time with last year. That's Vegas Golden Knights legend, Brett Howden, to you and I. For the most part, he was playing on the fourth line with Rooney and Howden when he came over with Quinn, with the idea with David Quinn as the coach, with the idea being if he is on the fourth line, he will be able to make zone entries for that line and they won't have to do only playing defense. In theory, that was the idea. They were okay for about a week of the 20 games they played. They had positive possession numbers for about two weeks and then, excuse me, for about one week of the two and a half weeks that line was together and then they tried to do a bunch of different things they moved them up in the lineup a little bit you got to remember towards the end of the season last year how dinged up the rangers were missing a bunch of guys especially in that top six where Kreider was out for most of the last month of the season and that's where you see he got some ice time with Strom. but four points in 20 games low on ice shooting percentage averaging about 12 minutes a game not a significant amount of ice time and didn't really get to play with quality players so it's really hard to evaluate what type of player he is i mean on paper and when you watch the video you see why he was drafted as high as he was he's a decent straight line skater he's a pretty good playmaker that's probably his best trait is his ability to make offense for others he's not an elite shooter he's got an okay shot but his best trait is his playmaking and in theory if you can incorporate him into your top nine even for this upcoming season that's one less hole you have to fill and he's not costing a lot so even if you do have to get a little bit creative with the top six if you can pencil him in for third line right wing that's a pretty solid starting point for your third line. You still got to figure out what you're doing with Heedle, what you're doing with Lafreniere, but at the very least, if you have Krasov on the third line, that's an okay building block. If he is on your third line, you have a 
reasonable chance of having a good third line. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. Like with 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 Kravtsov, we kind of don't know what to expect out of him because we didn't really get a chance to see what he's all about the first time he was here because yeah. David Quinn, as you mentioned, shoved him with fourth liners that can't drive offense, that can't drive possession. So when you drive, so when you put an offensively gifted player with teammates that can't do anything with the puck, that hampers everybody. Because if Vitaly Kravtsov, if if he if you're if if what you're seeing out of him as the head coach of a team is that Kravtsov needs to get better on defense, okay, well he can't get better on offense because his two line mates don't know what to do when they get the puck. So he's trying to do everything offensively, and by the time he gets back to the back to his own zone to defend, he's exhausted because Kevin Rooney doesn't know how to score. And nobody else like Brett Howden couldn't score a goal if his life depended on it here when he went when he was a ranger for a little bit. He had to, he had a few crazy snipes as a Vegas Golden Knight. I mean, all the all the more power to him. He was a much better Golden Knight than he was a Ranger. But the fact of the matter was was is that when he was a Ranger, my guy was terrified at times of handling the puck in the offensive zone. It, it was it was as if the puck had had a bounty on his like as if the the puck had like a blackmail on it. He was he was terrified of shooting the puck, of handling the puck. It was it was baffling to watch at times. So when you put an offensively gifted player with teammates like that, it drives everybody crazy because nobody gets what they want and nothing good ever comes from it. So I can understand why Kravtsov got frustrated early on. Now again should he have done that? Is that the right decision? I don't know. And it doesn't really matter at this point because he's, he signed a one-year extension. He's coming back to New York and what happened then doesn't really matter anymore. Now it's kind of like, okay, well he's here. I don't know where to pencil him in yet because we don't know. First of all, I'm sure he's matured from that point to now. And how good is he offensively? How good is he defensively against NHL talent? We have no idea, but time will tell. The other one, and it's interesting because the, the the other big one was they gave Blay a one-year extension as well. And it's very interesting, the, the, diver, the divergent points in the opinions of those two players. Because a lot of, I'll just say it, a lot of the older heads are very much out on Kratzov because he disrespected authority, kind of told the Rangers, okay, I don't need this. I'll go back to Russia and... I don't care. And then those very same people are very much optimistic that Sammy Blay, who never played more than 12 minutes and who has all of 33 points in 133 career NHL games, is going to be an impactful player. And it's just very weird how people's worldviews get in the way of their ability to evaluate or what they think of players. Because on face value, I understand why people like what Sammy Blay brings. He's got a little bit of a high motor. He's not straight line fast, but he will keep moving his feet. He throws a ton of hits. He's reasonably good on the forecheck, and he's got a little bit of offensive upside. We saw a couple flashes of decent hands. A couple. He had the one nice goal in the preseason against the Devils, and then he had one nice goal in the regular season. I want to say it was against the Blues before he got hurt in that game against the Devils later on in the regular season. But again, I think in your best case scenario, 
If you're a good team, Sammy Blay is playing on your fourth line and you're not going to get too hurt. The Rangers' problem was they were playing him on the second line and the first line during the first month of last season because he was very clearly a project. The GM went out and traded a good player to get him and a draft pick back, and they said, okay, we think this guy can be more. He needs more of an opportunity to do that. And he'd never averaged more minutes in a game than he did this past season. He went from 12-10 in St. Louis to 13-something in New York. So you can see the Rangers were making a concerted effort to try and figure out what exactly he was too. Because for somebody who's 24, almost 25 years old, Blade doesn't have a ton of NHL experience. He's only 130 games. And I get it. He's a six-round pick, so a little bit of a slower development chart. But at the same time, do you really want to be sinking ice time into somebody who is at 25 years old, still kind of unsure what they are at the NHL level, especially in the top six? Well, listen, I, I, I'll say this for the uh, millionth time. Uh, the Pavel Butchevich trade was a disaster, and it never should have happened. They could have gotten Blay for like a fourth round pick. Yeah, if they really easily. liked him that much, go get him for a fourth, bring him along a little slowly, and don't just throw him to the wolves. Because it's yeah. a lot to ask of somebody who's never played with high-end players extensively to say, all right, you're playing with Panera and you're playing with Zbigniew. I know when the Blues won the Cup, he did get a little bit of burn with Ryan O'Reilly. But that's not a whole season. I the the one thing I will say about this trade is that the the trade objectively was was terrible, but yes. that like that shouldn't reflect on on Blay specifically yes. because the Rangers could have acquired him as you said for a lot less than Pavel Buchnevich. There was no there was just no rhyme or reason to trading Pavel Buchnevich for Blay and also a second round pick. Like you could have had semi Blay for like you said, a fourth round pick or maybe a middling prospect or like, you know, the Rangers have 75 defensive prospects, move one of them and you get Sammy Blay. You might not get the second round pick. And if you wanted the second round pick, then maybe you could do something angly there. But Pavel Buchnevich did not have to go to St. Louis for the Rangers to get Blay. Like there's, there's no reason for that to happen. And like, that is why the trade is as bad as it is. Not because of Blay specifically, but because of the optics of the trade in and of itself, where Pavel Buchnevich goes to St. Louis, and by the way, again, a tremendous season in St. Louis. Oh, I'm shocked that Pavel Buchnevich, noted good hockey player, had another good season in St. Louis. I, I can't believe it. But Sammy Blay, unfortunately, you know, had that had the, had that horrific leg injury early on in the season, and he's been out ever since. Like that, you can't control that, and hopefully for the Rangers sakes, Hemi Blake comes back in October and demolishes the entire league. The Rangers and the fans and everybody would want nothing more than for Sammy Blake to all of a sudden put up 60, 65 points in the NHL. Obviously we all want that to happen. Will it happen? I wouldn't put money on it personally, but if that happens then phenomenal, that's still objectively a bad trade. Even if, Sammy, even if Sammy Blade wakes up tomorrow and says, I'm going to be a 60-point scorer in the NHL, that's still a bad trade. Just on the merits of the trade, yes. The one thing I was going through his profile on all the different hockey Patreons I subscribe to, the one interesting thing I did notice was his last year in St. Louis, which was the 56-game season, so not as big a sample size, 
was up there in puck retrievals. 70-something percentile, I think 72nd percentile. That's something the Rangers desperately need, a good puck retriever, because they were really bad at that during the regular season this year. I talked about it when we did the Twitter spaces last week. They dumped the puck in the eighth most of any team in the league, and they were 28th in puck retrievals. So if Sammy Blay can help them get a little bit closer to 20th in the league in puck retrievals, just winning loose pucks in the offensive zone, that's a win. That is exactly the type of skill set you need on your fourth line. Somebody like that with okay hands, not nothing amazing, but flashes of good hands, can win puck battles. That's your foundation. If you got him and you've got a Mott or somebody similar to that, that's a good two-thirds. And then ideally you have Goodrow in the middle, and then Reeves comes in depending on the opponent because they're not going to get rid of Reeves up for one more year. That's ideal your lineup is Sammy Blaze playing fourth line right wing. That is your ideal lineup, I think. Yeah, Stanley Cup teams have bottom sixes that can score goals. Yeah, This is not the 80s anymore. This is not the 70s where the bottom six is there specifically to throw injuries to the other team. Like this is this is 2022 we're talking about here. And I said this last episode here and I'll say it again. I love Ryan Reeves as a human being. I think he's great in the locker room. I think he brings phenomenal energy to the to the rest of the team. As a person, from what I know about Ryan Reeves, he's, a, he's, he's great. On the ice, he's a bad hockey player, period. Objectively, Ryan Reeves, he can't skate. He's too slow. He can't handle the puck in the offensive zone or in any zone for that matter. He's, he's at this stage of his career, he can't really do much that, ben- that tangibly benefits the teammate plays for when he's on the ice. If you wanted to add him as an assistant coach or as a video coach or whatever, I am 100% for that. The, the team loves him. They're, I'm all on board. I give, give Ryan Reeves a lifetime contract behind the bench. If that's what you wanted to do, go at it. But as a hockey player, when he's on the ice, he's not very good at the sport of hockey. And at least anymore. So you need a bottom six that, that is able to score goals. The Lightning have it. The Avalanche have it. Everybody that is fighting for the cup right now has bottom sixes that are able to put the puck in the net. And the Rangers just did not have that this season, especially earlier on when they kept putting Kevin Rooney on the ice, Ryan Reeves on the ice. Like you Greg can't. McCag. Gregory McKegory on the ice. Like you can't, you can't expect to win hockey games when those guys are on the ice for you and they can't score goals. And the last time I checked, how do you win hockey games? How do you, how do you win hockey games? Like, how do you do that? You need to score one more goal than the other team. That's it. Thank you. We need the Udonis Haslam rule for, we need that. We need, you need to have the healthy scratches down on the bench. That way Reeves can be Udonis Haslam where he can just sit with the towel around his neck the entire game for 82 games. It works. I mean, Haslam hasn't played more than like 12 minutes in four years, but he's still getting that check and he's still in the room and that matters. That's the one thing that's really hard to kind of anecdotally, you could say, Reeves makes a positive impact, but we don't really have any way of knowing because that's not something we ever get to really unpack and understand the interpersonal relationships on a team. I know that's kind of by design, but at the same time, I'd like to know more about what he brings to the room that makes it such uh, that you're willing to accept he's not great at hockey. Like, it, does he know magic tricks? Like, what does he do? <laughs> what does he do in the locker room that gets so everybody so amped up that I need this guy on my team? He must know magic tricks because he's still <laughs> getting money by the from the New York Rangers to play hockey, which is something that he can't really do anymore. So I guess he does know magic. 
Yeah, I've, yeah. That that's one of those things where every team needs glue guys, but ideally your glue guys are also good. That's that's the thing. Ideally, you have a glue guy who is good. Hashtag glue guy. Hashtag locker room guy. Hashtag I, I forget the the famous tweet. I think it was from Drager when the Rangers signed Jack Johnson, and he had <laughs> not he had not one good thing to say about him on the ice, but he he listed off all these platitudes about Jack Johnson off the ice. Like that's. Ryan Reeves is better at hockey than Jack Johnson is. Yes. But that's kind of not saying a whole lot. And Ryan Reeves isn't all that good either, unfortunately. I'm going to quote what I think was Greg Cosell said on the Dan Patrick show a couple years ago when they were talking about the NFL draft. It's nice to be a leader. It's nice to be liked. At some point, you need to actually be able to throw a football accurately if you want to be an NFL quarterback. If you want to be a good NHL player, you have to be able to play with the puck. If you can't handle the puck on your stick, you're not a good NHL player. And that's it. We've spent way too much time bitching about Reeves. Uh, Moving along, moving along. So I like to keep it moving. We could do this forever. Absolutely. In the the branch of the informative, the hockey school branch of things that we have here on our rundown, you brought it up because you tweeted this. I don't know if you have the exact highlight handy, but please walk the people through the Ke'Andre Miller play you were talking to me about the other day. Because this is kind of the subtle thing where if you don't watch a ton of hockey, you might just say, okay, nice play. But... I think if you really kind of peel it back like Andrew is about to here, you kind of get a better understanding of one of the little mechanics within hockey because there are so many things that go into any sequence in a hockey game. When you just think about the five skaters on each team on the ice, the divots on the ice, the imperfections in the ice, the weird bounces you get on different boards, the weird bounces you get when a puck hits a stick and off an ash cheek down towards the goal line, all of these things – it makes trying to understand hockey very difficult. So this is a specific play Andrew referenced to me. I think you said it was during the Tampa series, but yeah, it, yeah. it's just a good idea of a subtle thing defensemen can do to make their goalie's life a little bit easier. And the Rangers need to make Igor Shesterkin's life easier. So it, it helps that Keanu Miller is six foot four and he has a long hockey stick that he can always reach out. But the, when when you're when you're a goaltender, and I was a goaltender for a little bit. I mean, not for very long. Clearly, I wasn't very good because I'm not in the NHL. But uh, when you're when you're a goaltender and there's a player that's coming at you, you need to be able to see one where the puck is and two the the trajectory of the shot because you have to read where the puck is going so that you can stop it from going into the net. Right? When I don't have the exact play in front of me, but I I have it in my head where there was a lightning player that was coming in on Shostakin's glove side. And Keandre Miller was back defending the play. Instead of Keandre Miller, who, by the way, is 22 years old and only started playing defense a few years ago, it's not as if he grew up being a defenseman. He was a forward for most of his for most of his playing time growing up as a hockey player. Instead of staying in front of the puck and trying to def- trying to block it with his body, what Keandre Miller does is something that I don't see very often, especially from 22-year-old defensemen in the NHL. He kind of took a sidestep to the left, but kept his stick in front of the shot, which gives Shesterkin 
all the space that he needs to be able to see the puck. Because what could happen is Keandre Miller could have the right intention of trying to block the shot or deflect the shot or what have you. And the puck could go between his legs or it could deflect off of his skate or do something and end up in the back of the net for Shesterkin to, to have the, the best chance of stopping this puck. He has to see it and he has to react to it as quickly as he possibly could. So instead of Keandre Miller trying to block the shot with his body or go, or going down to block it or what have you, he kind of steps away to the left a little bit while keeping his stick in front of the, in front of the puck mover in front of the puck and, and, defends it that way so that if he doesn't get the stick on the shot, then Shesterkin has a clear line of sight to where the puck is going to go. And you don't see that very often from anybody in the NHL, but Keandre Miller to do that at 22, at 22 years old, it, 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 it shows and it highlights just such what kind of hockey IQ this, this kind of player has, because there's, we've noted in the past where there's been concerns with Truba and Miller as a pairing where they would miscommunicate where the puck is sometimes like that. A lot of the times there'd be a miscue by one of them and the puck went on the, the back of the net. But I think Keandre Miller really, really, really showed just how knowledgeable of the sport of hockey he is by that one play because other defensemen would have just tried to block it with their leg or would have just tried to deflect it or do something. Keandre Miller was still in front of the shot, but instead of trying to block it with his body, he moved out of the way just ever so slightly so that Shesterkin has a clear view of the shot. And it was a phenomenal play. This is one of the things I try and explain to people when they ask me why I don't think Truba is good at defense. And Truba's a good puck mover. He's not great defensively. The key to defense in the modern NHL is being in the right place at the right time. If you have to build up a bunch of speed to catch up to the play or to throw a check, that usually means you're out of position. So to this point about Miller, Fox does this very well, too, of you know where you're supposed to be. You get there before the other person gets there. And if you're in the right position, more often than not, you can make a play without having to go down to block the shot. Ideally, you can get away with just poke checks and stick lifts. In an ideal world, that is how you would like to play defense because you're more likely than not going to get the puck back if you play the puck that way. Whereas if you throw a check, you might not necessarily retain the puck or get the puck in your team's possession. So the higher IQ play, it's not for every type of player. There are very there. There's levels to this here game. Not every player is going to have the wherewithal to be able to make that play, but that's a very good sign for somebody who, like you pointed out, is only 22, only in his second full NHL season, and is still kind of feeling out what he needs to do to play that well. I know for a large portion of the regular season, especially up until I would say about February, there was a very vocal section of the fan base who was complaining that he just refused to throw the body, just refuse to ever run somebody into the boards, take the puck away that way. He doesn't need to do that if he gets there first, because like you pointed out, he's six foot four and he's got a ridiculously long stick. Char didn't need to do that when he was in his prime in Boston. He would just get to there. He would have the longest reach in the league. His stick would be there and you just didn't have the puck anymore. That's the ideal world the Rangers can keep Miller going in here. The one guy I was talking about with somebody a couple weeks ago was... If they can get Miller to be a 
a more agile version of what Mark Edward Vlasic was before his ankle surgery. That's the ideal world where he's your clear cut shutdown defenseman. You play him on the second pair with somebody else who's really good at suppressing scoring chances. And you got good lineup balance because if you play him away from Fox, you have a very clear cut. Okay, this is our first pair. This is our defensive pair. That would really help the way you just balance out the lineup a little bit. And I imagine they're going to stick with Truba and Miller going into next season just because they played like the fourth most minutes of any D pair in the league. And they were very clearly okay with the results they got. Otherwise, they would have stopped playing them so much together. But there is upside. And that's the thing that makes Miller so tantalizing is he's still kind of just figuring it out. And he's not in an ideal situation. And he's still pretty good. You see the flashes of somebody who could be a really special talent. I think the one thing that that clip in particular shows is how solid his fundamentals are when it comes to understanding his position. Because like I said, again, Keandre Miller has not played defense for his entire life. He's only transitioned from forward a few years ago. So to have that kind of understanding of where my body is in relation to not only the puck, the puck handler, but also my goaltender behind me, in a Eastern Conference final game, it, it, it really just highlights how smart and how fundamentally sound Keandre Miller is when he's on the ice. And you mentioned Mark Edward Vlasic. Well, what about his what about his partner and and uh, Brent Burns? Could could Keandre Miller potentially be a more better defensively? Because Brent Burns not very good defensively, uh, but less offensively gifted version of, of Brent Burns. No, because he doesn't have that natural instinct that Burns does. Granted, he's never really gotten an opportunity to run a power play, but he's never really shown that type of playmaking ability. He's he can get puck where it needs to go, but he doesn't have the high end vision of somebody like Fox who who can make a play happen just with his eyes. I don't think Miller is going to be able to do that. Miller, I think Miller's best traits are defense oriented as opposed to offense oriented. So I don't think Burns is the right comp. I think Edward Vlasic, maybe something along the lines of like trying to think a left-handed Jared Spurgeon, something along those lines of somebody who's just going to be good at suppressing chances against where ideally he's going to break up the play in the neutral zone before he ever even has to defend. That's the ideal world. He develops into that type of defensive defenseman. And the Rangers need one of those because for as good as Fox is, for as good as Lindgren is, for what Troop is good at, they don't have a clear cut. Okay, I trust this defenseman over the boards against that team's best player every single shift. As good as Fox is, I don't trust him and Lindgren the same way I trusted McDonough Girardi like 10 years ago. It's just different types of games. Fox and Lindgren are great at generating offense. They're not as good defensively as McDonough was with Girardi when Girardi could still move like 10 years ago. I kind of disagree with that. I think when when Fox and Lindgren are on the ice, I trust them more than anybody, maybe in the entire league. Like obviously, nah. th- obviously there's there's going to be situations where they get scored on and no, no, no defense pairing has zero goals against like that just doesn't happen. But when Fox and Lindgren are on the ice, Fox what what that pairing does is Lindgren is the defensive anchor on the ice because Ryan Lindgren has no he doesn't want the puck ever 
he he will pass it. He will do whatever it takes to never have the puck on his stick. And that for a defenseman, that's okay. Because what is the primary job that you have as a defenseman in the game of hockey is to defend. If if a defenseman has offensive talent, offensive capabilities, great. But as long as their their primary talent is defending, everything else is extra. So Ryan Lindgren will always stay back and make sure that there is going to be somebody back if the puck gets turned over or if the puck is going the other way and there needs to be somebody back defending their own zone. Adam Fox is a tremendous two-way hockey player. He, I think he deserves more credit than he, than he does at least this season. Like obviously he won the North. Uh, yeah. Like he just won the North for, for best, for best defenseman in the NHL. So who else are you going to, like who else are you going to trust? Like, besides the reigning current reigning of, well, this, that, that would age well a couple of weeks when the when awards were announced, but current reigning uh, Norris winner. He literally is the best defenseman in the NHL right now. So it, so his offensive capabilities are incredible. His defensive capabilities. I mean, there's some of the, a lot of these things are, that, that, uh, Adam Fox does do not appear on the score sheet. These are yeah. the, these are the, he's, he's deep in the offensive end and the puck goes the other way. And my guy is the first one coming back already, already breaking up a stick check or a stick lift or, you know, just, just disrupting the play somehow. He's always the first one back. And whenever I watch him play, it is, it is just a marvel to watch. Yeah, he's, he's incredible at what he does. So, I when when 23 and 55 are on the ice, I have firm belief that for the most part, because obviously, again, no, no defensive pairing will ever not give up goals. It's going to happen. But when those two are on the ice, I feel safe. I also just the thing that we're when it comes to Fox and Lindgren is they're not great in front of their own net. That's just a product of them both being smaller guys. I, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't make Adam Fox three inches taller because if he was three inches taller, he could be the best defenseman to ever play hockey. I think that would be kind of be the consensus there. But I mean, in an ideal world, yeah, a little bit taller, a little bit better in front of their own nets. That's really the only real weakness Fox and Lindgren have as a pair. And I, for whatever reason, it just the trust level isn't what it was back then. Maybe that's just benefit of hindsight and understanding limitations a little bit better. But there's a few pairs I would take over Fox and Lindgren. Not like a more than like two or three, but yeah, there's a few I would take. It's not a ridiculous conversation, but I get your point. I definitely get your point. I don't know. Like, okay, if you if you want to argue that they're not the best defensive pair in the NHL, like that's fine. Yeah, but they are. I think they're definitely within that conversation. Are they number one? I don't know. Like it, that's, that's a very subjective no, thing. It's like, McCarr and Tace. It's yeah, McCarr Yeah. I mean, at that point, like we're just, you know, who, like we're, we're just deba- like, we're, we're in the barbershop just debating, just to debate, right? Like there's, there's no winner. Nobody wins and everybody goes home angry because the other person didn't agree with them. Right. Like there's, you don't win with conversations like that. What we can say, or at least I can say is that I, I trust Lindgren and Fox a lot when they're, whenever they're on the ice, they are, to me, one of the best pairings in the NHL yeah. with Fox's offensive dy- just dynamo when he, whenever he has the puck. Ryan Lindgren is as as solid defensively as you're going to find. Obviously, Adam Fox is very good in his own zone, too, because if he wasn't, then we, he wouldn't have won the Norris. So with those two, there's, uh, there's still concerns. As you said, when they're defending in front of their own net, there's there's some kind of issue sometimes where they're just not big enough. Their, their sticks aren't long enough and pucks get through and, and that happens. But overall, when they're on the ice, I would bet more money that, that there's not going to be a goal against 
rather than the opposite. Yeah, no, they've definitely gotten good results over the last two years. There's no arguing that. Okay. So the big picture, the main topic we have for today's show is centered around why, even though the Rangers lost to Tampa, even if they had managed to get by Tampa, I've both Andrew and I are in agreement that if they were playing Colorado right now, they would probably be faring worse than Tampa on a lot of different levels. So do you want to start or you want me to go lead off here? Yeah, I, I'm trying to find the uh, the text right now. We like we had a, a jumping off point here. And basically, I, I texted you a couple of days ago as we were watching game two that the Rangers had no shot against Colorado, basically, because here's the here's the thing. I know the Rangers won the first two games against Tampa Bay and everybody was saying, okay, well, Tampa Bay is done and the Rangers are moving on. And then, oh, well, you see what happened. The Lightning won four in a row. Okay. The Rangers also couldn't score a five on five goal to save their lives. And and Colorado loves scoring five on five goals. Like that's, that's, they, you, you can't defend them on, on when, when they have a power play and you can't really defend them when you have all five guys on the ice either. Like they're just that good. Right. So if the Tampa Bay Lightning, are having seven put on them against with, with Andre Vasilevsky in net. What like it's just okay, okay, fine. If if you want to argue that Shostakin is better than Vasilevsky, fine. Okay, then then they score five. I'll, gi- I'll give you I'll give you five. Okay, are the Rangers going to score six goals? No. Against this Avs team, are they really going to do that? So okay, if you want to if you want to make the argument that that Shesterkin would have saved a couple of those goals and what, and what have you. And the, 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 the Rangers would have played a better team game, I guess, than the lightning. You're going to argue all these things again, at the end of the day, like this is all just ifs because the Rangers got eliminated. We don't know what they would have looked like against the abs. You could, somebody could mention, Oh, well the, the Rangers beat the abs in the regular season. Do you want a cookie for that? Cause the regular season and the playoffs are not the same thing. And it didn't. It doesn't matter what your record is against somebody in the regular season. It doesn't matter. This is the Stanley Cup final. Throw everything before that uh, out the window because it doesn't matter. It's all irrelevant. So with the the Colorado Avalanche right now are skating circles around the the back to back Stanley Cup champions, and we'll see what happens in Game Three. This is a massive. Massive game three. The Lightning have been unbeatable at home. The Avs beat anybody when wherever. I mean, they could come to my local rink and beat whoever they want there too if they wanted to. Like this is this is right now a complete wagon of a hockey team. And I don't know if Ryan Strom hobbled on one leg and and Tyler Mott could really do the the damage here against Colorado. Stylistically, it would be a nightmare problem for the Rangers because the thing that Colorado does that kind of just hammers you into submission is how often their defensemen jump up into the play in the offensive zone where they're essentially playing with four forwards most of the time because McCarr and Taze are playing close to 30 minutes a game at this point in the playoffs. And when you just have that kind of flexibility in your deployment where no matter what, if McCarr and Taze have, whenever they're on the ice, they're going to control the flow of play and the thing that the Rangers were doing all of the playoffs was trying to absorb pressure and counterattack. 
Colorado does that, but better. Because, you know, if they get the puck to McKinnon in transition, he's just going to go through everybody in a way that Zabinijad or Kreider isn't. If they get the puck to Landeskog, he's going to gain the zone with speed. He's going to wheel it around the boards, and they're going to set up. And the Rangers just didn't have the link-up play that you need to have to be successful. The most important 30 feet of ice is the neutral zone. Against Tampa, the Rangers were in absolute hell in the neutral zone because they couldn't get through. Tampa was putting an extra guy back and saying, okay, dump the puck in past us and go get it. If you beat us to the puck behind our own goalie, we can live with that. But you're not going to do it 40 out of 80 times. I guarantee you we're going to beat you to that puck more than half the time. And that's what happened over the course of that long series. And it's why the Rangers' offense went away because the Rangers need to live in transition to create offense because that's the way they're set up to play. That's Panarin's best trait, his ability to win the puck, get the puck in the neutral zone, create his own entry, and then make a play for somebody else. That is what Panarin is one of, if not the best player in the entire league at doing. Against Tampa, he didn't have the room to gain the zone, to get the rest of his forward set up, and then to set up a play. By the time the Rangers would gain the zone with the puck on Panarin's stick, he had to move it because Tampa was already on him, or he didn't get the zone at all. Against Colorado, Colorado's defense, a little bit smaller, a little bit less rugged, they do have Jack Johnson, who doesn't play every game, but they do have Jack Johnson. That is something we could point Rangers out. Rangers legend, Jack Johnson, baby. That's listen. He's a once a Ranger, always a Ranger. That's that's our guy. That's Jack Johnson. But uh, in the terms of just how the Rangers would fare against Colorado, McKinnon's better than anybody on the Rangers. That that's our starting point here. And in the last series, Kucherov played better than anybody on the Rangers. Zabinijad had more points than him going into that that series, and then after game two, the offense kind of went away, like we said before. I said it on last week's episode, but I went back and I reread um, Dom Lechuzin's thing in The Athletic. The Rangers were scoring point f- were generating .5 expected goals per 60 minutes from games three to six. So not really making a whole lot of offense and uh, a typical game at five on five. Most teams are generating at least 1.9 two expected goals per game to only be generating half an expected goal at five on five means you don't have the puck enough because if you had the puck more just by sheer volume, you could have a higher expected goals and B you're not getting the puck to anywhere good because a good scoring chance is like 0.2 expected goals, like a 20% chance of going in, that's a quality expected goal scoring chance. So the fact they only were generating 0.5 for three straight games, that goes to show they didn't have enough quality, they didn't have enough quantity, and their game-breaking players, Fox, Zabinijad, Panarin, etc., they didn't take over the game the same way they did against Carolina, where even though Carolina was winning the expected goals and the scoring chances battles, the Rangers high-end players just said, we're better than you, and we're going to make the di- up the difference. In that series against Tampa, the Rangers high-end players were not able to make up the difference. Shostakov was amazing in the Tampa series, and they really didn't have a chance. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Like, you, your goalie can be as good. At, they, he, you can have Hasek in net. You can have Waugh in net. You can have anybody you want in net. But at, at the end of the day, if your team scores zero goals, it doesn't matter. You need to you you need to have an offense that is capable of of scoring goals at will, essentially. Yeah. That's what Colorado's doing. They score. I I need I, I need to say this again because it, it, it it's very surprising that people are like the Colorado Avalanche scored seven goals on Andre Vasilevsky 
in game two of the Stanley Cup final, in which the Lightning also lost game one, and the Lightning look like they're a beer league team right now. Like this, like this is how good Colorado is. If the Rangers couldn't score anything in the in the last four, all those losses against the Lightning, where as you said, they weren't even generating expected goals for. They didn't get goal lead. They didn't get you know it wasn't it wasn't an NHL ice tilt situation where you'd have a million shots. The other player would have four, and he'd, they'd be winning three to two. Like that, that didn't happen. The Rangers just couldn't generate any offense on the Lightning. So the fact that Colorado is absolutely skating circles around the Tampa Bay Lightning just goes to show, like, obviously we would have wanted the Rangers to be there, to be here. We would have wanted to see them play. We would have wanted to see how they matched up against this team. But objectively, as a hockey fan, we have to understand that the likelihood of the Rangers winning four games against this Avs team, probably zero. Pretty close to it, if not absolutely zero. I'm always the dumb and dumber guy. I know you're saying there's a chance just on principle because nothing's absolutely impossible. We've seen stupider things happen, in, especially in hockey. We have seen stupider things happen. But big picture understanding, the main part of this conversation is just how much more progress the Rangers need to make to be an actual legitimate contender. I mean, coming into the season, I think they were like 23, 24 to one to win the Stanley cup, pretty middle of the pack to lower end of the pack odds. Nobody expected them to get this far. They dramatically overachieved on the back of a handful of players. And that's the breaks. You have a lucky season. You get lucky enough. Eventually that kind of becomes who you are, which was what they were for about the first 50 games of the season. Then the deadline happened. They had really good results for about 15 of the final 20 games. And then they go into the series against Pittsburgh, Carolina, Tampa, etc. They need to get better and they need the guys they have to play better. And that's the thing. You can get whoever you want. You could talk 36-year-old Patrice Bergeron into being the number two center for $5 million a year. It doesn't matter if Kreider and Zabinijad don't play better than they did against Tampa. That's realistically the thing that... I've been saying this for two, three years now. Eventually, your high-end players are going to need to make up the difference in a series. They did against Carolina. Nobody on Carolina is good is as good as Panarin or Zabinijad in a vacuum. Tampa, they got Kucherov, they got Stamkos. Both of those guys are probably better than Panarin and Zabinijad. If you wanted to say Panarin was better than Stamkos, I would give you that. That's a reasonable argument. But for the most part... Tampa's high-end players are really good. And then you get to Carol to Colorado, who's got, you know, five, six super high-end players, and they've got a good bottom six. I mean, they've gotten this far without Nazem Kadri. They've lost two playoff games this entire playoffs, Colorado. And they haven't had their second line center since the second round against St. Louis. Again, like we said last week, how far are the Rangers getting without Ryan Strom? We saw how bad that offense was in game four without Ryan Strom. Yeah, listen, like you you hit you hit the nail on the head. Like I think that's a great point. Like with Ryan Strom also, by the way, couldn't generate much of anything against yeah. Tampa Bay anyway. So even when he was on the ice before the inter- before the injury happened, he couldn't do much anyway. So yeah. even with him playing second line center, it's not as if he was dominating the puck. It's not as if he was dominating the Tampa Bay Lightning defensively or at center ice. He was there. He skated, I think, for for some games, sometimes, some of the time. 
that's kind of it. So Ryan, and he also missed that open net, which again, it, that's, you know, that that'll sting for, for a long time because Ryan Strom, that was kind of the epitome of him as a Ranger was him just somehow, some way finding ways to not score when the opportunity is gift wrapped to him and delivered to his house. It, there was so many empty nets throughout the course of him as a Ranger. And like, he could be back. I don't, I don't think he will. Cause I would imagine he would, he demands more than the Rangers are willing to give him. But as, as a Ranger, Ryan Strom had great chemistry with Panarin for stretches of, of the regular season before, before this season. But ultimately when it came down to it, when the moment is there, once again, Ryan Strom, the, at the pretty much the only good offensive opportunity he had against Tampa Bay, he missed an open net, which is something that he loved to do during the course of his Rangers tenure. So he didn't really get much done offensively either way before the injury, after the injury. So when your second line center is putting up a goose egg in the conference finals, that spells trouble. That's another good point we can talk about in terms of Colorado's roster construction is they haven't had Kadri for about a round and a half now, and they just slid their third line center, Jonas Donskoy, up there, and they've been fine with him playing second line center. I don't know if Filipino could have done that in these playoffs if the Rangers really needed him to. And then what does that do to your third line if you have to slide Heedle up from your third line to your second line? It's just the Rangers didn't have enough depth. Their high-end players weren't high-end enough. And you start realizing just how damn hard it is to win a cup. And even when you start comparing the group this year to teams of years past in terms of talent and getting hot at the right time, and still you just realize how much further the Rangers have to go and how much is going to come down to how good the younger guys are going to be going forward. Cause that's realistically your only real room to improve the roster. Unless you trade somebody making a ton of money is you need one of these younger guys to not just be good. You need one of these younger guys to be an upper echelon high end guy, whether it be Hedl, Kako, Lafreniere, Kraftsov, even it's got one of those guys is going to have to be a bona fide top six guy who can give you 60 points a season. And there's no guarantees of anything. And it's why this lost opportunity sucks so bad. But at the same time, I'm not sure I would like to see Porsche Sturkin against this Colorado team. I, I was talking about that the other day with my friends who I was watching the game with on Saturday night. And they were like, how bad do you think the Rangers would be getting? Shesterkin might set the record for saves in a four-game sweep. He could have done that. Yeah. No, you, you're totally right. Like it's With the Rangers, I kind of wouldn't be surprised if Jacob Trupa gets moved this summer for a top six guy, if only to, to move that salary from the, from the blue line to the, the forward group, because the Rangers have, as we mentioned, approximately 95 different defensemen that could potentially play up in the NHL at this point. So if they see uh, a Zach Jones or somebody like that step up to the plate and say, Hey, here I am. And you either trade me or play me because I'm that good. And I'm not going back down to the AHL. I would imagine within New York's core of now the numbers growing to 136 defensemen that they could play at any given time. At least one of these players has to has to is going to grow into that kind of player. So then Jacob Truba again, like he, I said this in the last episode as well. He is such a Jekyll and Hyde player. There will be one game where he is phenomenal. He is defending his own zone very well. He's 
shooting. He's he's whenever he has a puck on the stick, he's shooting. Doesn't matter where it is on the ice, he's taking the shot, which is great because a lot of the players on the Rangers don't love doing that. When Jacob when Jacob Truba is on, he's a phenomenal hockey player. The problem is that he's not on all the time and you have no idea what to expect from him game in and game out. There are times where he is phenomenal and then there are games where he is horrific. He is coughing up the puck. He's not defending is not, is not defending in front of his own net much at all and he's on the ice for multiple goals goals against and he takes eight penalties a game and like there's a lot of cons associated with Jacob Truba. So if some defenseman kind of sets up to the plate here and says, here I am, like, I'm not going anywhere. Or if the Rangers decide the cons outweigh the pros and say, okay, Jacob Truba makes $8 million. Again, he has to waive his, his, his no move. I'm pretty sure that is already set in stone, but, and uh, from what I understand, he loves being there and his wife loves being there. Like they, they really wanted to be in New York, but if it's best for the team to do that kind of trade, and if Jacob Truba would agree to it, it, it could be beneficial. So I want to circle back to something about Strom because I I knew I took a screenshot of it, and I I think Larry wrote it. It might have been Molly. I forget who wrote it last week I, over the weekend. They reported that the Rangers' initial offer to Strom was five between five point two five and five and a half million, and Strom declined that offer. And they made that offer to him in the fall of this past season. So, getting an understanding of what he wants value wise, you're very clearly going to have to choose between whether or not you want to really tie yourself to Ryan Strome, whether you want to go to the cop route and slide cop from wing to center, or you want to go door number three. So in terms of roster construction, the biggest thing for the Rangers going forward here is going to be maintaining flexibility best they can because they have so much money tied up in just a handful of players that maintaining flexibility around those five or six guys who are making basically 45, more than almost more than half of the $82 million salary cap, that's going to be imperative going forward. And if these young guys keep improving and getting better, that's another problem because the raises are going to come. And once you have to start giving raises to your restricted free agents, that's when you really have to start trading off good players. I mean, the Islanders had to trade Devontae's away, who is one of the 10 best defensemen in the league. Two second round picks, baby. Two second round picks. That's all you need for Devontae's. And he won GM of the year for that. Well, yeah, that's yeah, (laughs) that's that that's another one where I I can't I can't believe that that's real. Like Lou, like Lou Lamorello really traded away his best defenseman for two second round picks because they couldn't pay him or didn't want to pay him or a combination of the two. And then the NHL was like, here, you did a great job. Tremendous job. Here's best GM award. I listen. I there's a lot of there's a lot of like funny quirks about the NHL that. That's one of them for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we've got about probably about a half hour till puck drop or so. We got a few questions on Twitter. We'll read off a few. We'll give some thoughts. Then we'll do final thoughts. Get everybody out of here to watch game number three. So I got the tweet pulled up here. So the first question we've got here is, Player by player season in review. What is a fair assessment of where the team is at? I think we kind of just touched on that right there, but they overachieved for sure this year. I think everybody's kind of in agreement. They weren't supposed to get this far. Uh, This is a good starting point. 
for the team to really show signs, they need to get better. It's that simple. They need to be better next year than they were this year. And that doesn't mean go further in the playoffs. That means your results and your process need to be better in the regular season. Don't make the goalie save 94% of all the shots he faces. Don't only score goals on the power play. Basic things here. We're not asking for the moon. I'm not saying you need to be the best possession team in the league. I'm saying if you realistically want a chance at winning a Stanley Cup, you need to go from 25th, 26th to like 15th. If you can go from bottom of the pack to middle of the pack and your underlying results, that is a successful season two under Gerard Gallant. You have to. One of the things we have to keep in mind here is in 2012, the Rangers got knocked out by the Devils in six games of the conference finals. Then the next year, they bounced in the second round. Yes. Right. And then they made it to the cup final. And then yeah. they made it to within one game of the cup final. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. And again, because the playoffs are, first of all, very random in yes. a lot of cases. Where some because hockey is by default the most random sport of the four major sports. Where you know if you're in basketball, like the the shot won't go off of nine players and into the hoop, like right, it just yeah. won't happen. But if you take a shot from the blue line, it could bounce off of this guy's leg and that guy's arm and that guy's skate, and it and it ends up in the back of the net. Hockey by default is the luckiest sport of the of the major four in America, right? So it, it takes a lot of luck to get back to the second round, the, the conference finals, even the final, like there's so much that goes into that. So it wouldn't be out of their own possibility to, to envision a situation in which the Rangers lose in the second round, like they did in 2013. Like, these things happen. Yeah. And that it, it's, it's important to say that the Rangers absolutely over like th- nobody, nobody expected them to make the conference finals this season. That's a fair assessment. The Rangers overachieved in the regular season. Nobody thought they'd be where they were in the regular season. And nobody thought they would be where they were come playoff time. Right. So, so they made the conference finals. They lost in six. This was a great season. Now you have to build on that. This is a, a crucial building block for this team now to get to, okay, here's, you know, like, he, you have this this bitter taste in your mouth because you lost in six games in the conference finals, the the, the cup the cup final, and potentially the cup was right there for you, and you and you lost it. Now you have to go all the way back just for the opportunity to win the cup again. So the Rangers now have to bottle all of that into let's build off of that season and off of that feeling, and how do we get back there? and break through this time like this. It's, it's a very difficult thing. And it's not, you know, for a lot of fans don't seem to understand that. Like, it's not just, you know, if you're playing an NHL, be a GM and you're just simming a season and you're just kind of whatever in every game. And like, like this is a grind. This is such a mental and physical grind. You never know when you're going to be back in the playoffs period. You never know when you're going to be back in the conference finals, the cup final, the second round. You never know, no matter how good of a team you think you're on, there's never a a guarantee that you're going to make it far in the cup finals. So this is an overachievement for sure, but now they have to take that energy and bottle it and carry it over to the next few seasons. Okay, this is an interesting one because this really goes into your view of how far along they are and how aggressive they should be. 
Reed Logan asks, is the correct way to win this offseason simply to forego major additions and allow the team to recure cap space again, like they did this past year, avoiding major commitments and having the financial flexibility to sign Heedle, Kraftsov, Miller, etc. the following summer? I don't hate this idea. I, I think that's probably the conservative approach to this offseason to just say, okay, we don't need Copper Strom. If you want to bring back Mott or somebody of Mott's ilk for the bottom six, fine. Slide the kids up the depth chart and figure out the bottom six in free agency. I could definitely see a world in which that's the Rangers' path because they need to maintain that financial flexibility going forward because they do imagine that Lafreniere, Miller are going to command significant amounts of money going forward. I don't hate that worldview at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one that the Rangers had definitely have to think about because as the the years come along as the tweet mentioned, a lot of the young guys need a new contract and they are going to demand a big payday from their, you know, their entry level $4 an hour kind of deal where they get absolutely nothing. And they're, they, the Rangers and especially a lot of the fans expect the world out of these guys. And they're still making, you know, entry level McDonald's type money comparatively to the rest of the NHL. So, you have to keep in mind that whoever you sign this season, you're either thinking is going to be in New York for a long time, or you're not signing them to a a deal longer than maybe a season or two, because then you put yourself into horrendous cap issues. Cause then you, as you mentioned, all of these top guys need new contracts. And how are you going to give them all new contracts? If you sign eight guys, to three-year deals or in case of Barclay Goudreau, six-year lifetime deal for to, to be a Ranger. So there's, there's, there's a world in which the Rangers do that and it might not be the most flashy thing and it might not be the most uh, headline thing that fans would particularly want. But in terms of long-term cap issues that might be the best way to go unless you unless there are some players that fit on the second line above that are willing to take egregious money but only for one season if that's the case then blank check yep. pretty much blank check if if Crosby this is not going to happen but if Crosby wants to come to the Rangers and play one season for x amount of money blank check right but if if Sidney Crosby called up Chris Drury and said, I want a four-year deal. Chris Drury has to hang up the phone, whether Chris Drury likes it or not, because given the cap situation, there is simply no way for that to be a tangible outcome. Yeah, no, I, I, this is kind of going to be where this is probably where I'm going to end up finishing it in terms of my opinion. I still got to do a little bit more looking, digging around, seeing who's out there, especially for bottom six roles. Cause if there's an ideal guy or two, and then you can just slide Heedle up and you slide Kako up, and then you just figure out the third line. It's a lot easier to figure out a third and a fourth line than it is to figure out your top six. A lot cheaper as well. That that's the thing. It's easier to find those guys. You also can get into trouble only looking at your bottom six like the Canucks did, like the Panthers used to. That That is also, uh, it's not as easy as it looks, but it's definitely easier than trying to fill out your top six. The next one here is from Sean Mahoney. With the C not going to Truba since it wasn't followed through with before the season, who is most likely to get it? Or do you think they will keep rotating A's back and forth? 
Well, as as we know, the Rangers uh, have eighteen thousand assists, uh, assistant captains, because they have eighteen on the ice, and everybody in the stands also has an honorary A on their on their sweater. So they could keep doing that, I guess, if they wanted to. I think I think I forget who said it, but there was one player that basically said that the C was more for the fans than it was for yeah. the team. Like the the team, from my understanding, uh, from that from that quote anyway the team doesn't really care who has to see like they have their leaders in the locker room and that's kind of that. And who has it on the ice doesn't really, it doesn't really matter to them more so than it does to us. That could very well be the case. Uh, I, it's not to me, like it, it doesn't really matter because the, the, the team knows who the leaders are and what's I like, it's, it's a letter on a Jersey. Like the, the fan, the fans want to see it's nice to have when you buy when you go to the garden, you want a jersey. It's nice to have the C on the sweater, I guess, instead of having the A or whatever. But ultimately, does that really impact the game when it's being played? Probably not. The way I talked about this, I talked this out like rationally, like out loud. Zabinajad's been here five and a half, six years now. Truba's been here three, four years. Kreider's been here 10. If it was going to be one of those three guys, they would have given it to them already. I think there's a world in which they wait for either Fox or Lafreniere to get it. If not, it doesn't really matter to me, as long as the players don't think they need one. If you have a strong personality who is suited to be a captain that obviously leaps out for you, like Bergeron in Boston, Crosby in Pittsburgh, okay, that makes sense. Don't force it. That's all. That would be my biggest thing. We've seen the Rangers do that more than once. Don't force it. If somebody is naturally suited for that kind of role, okay. Don't go making someone a captain to sell more jerseys. That would be my main point here. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. Like you don't you don't need to do that. You don't have to do that. And you you make a great point. If if Kreider or Zabenajad or somebody along those lines were really the captains of this team, they would have had the C under jersey by now. Like this, they've been on this team for long enough. Like if, if they were to get it, they would have already had it by now. So, okay, well, if they're not going to get it, who will Well, Jacob Truba can get the C. Okay. But will he be on the Rangers long-term after what we saw in the playoffs, especially against Tampa Bay? I don't know. Will he, uh, certainly the Rangers kind of were thinking about giving him the C and then they decided not to, which could be something could be nothing. Could be a trade, could not be a trade. Call me an insider. Uh, Truba goes to a 10-team no-trade next summer, so he has a limited no-trade after this upcoming season. So there's a world in which one of him or Kreider gets moved next summer because they both go from full no-move to 10-team no-move. So that's something to keep in mind in terms of roster flexibility going forward because $8 million is a lot of money in a flat-cap world. That's like a little bit less than 10% of the salary cap. Uh, Andrew McNitt asks, is Gallant the right coach to get the most out of this roster? Will he ever be good enough to win a cup? Um, coaching in hockey is a lot of just luck, just generally speaking, unless you are one of like the four or five best coaches in the entire sport, like Mike Sullivan, like Rod Brindamore, like Bruce Cassidy, like John Cooper, who is consistently shown a track record out of getting a lot out of a little. I don't think a coach is going to make a 
ton of difference. I do think there is something to be said from going from one of the worst coaches in the league to somebody who's like the 11th or 12th best coach in the league. But I don't think there is a huge difference in terms of like the eighth best coach versus the 10th best coach in the NHL. Like there is in other sports, especially in like football, where your head coach really matters week to week because they're going to be a key part of game plan, which is just not something that's in hockey. There are three tiers of NHL head coaches. There are the top of the top where you have the John Coopers, like you mentioned, you have the Mike Sullivan's or our Brendan Moore's. You have the middle of the pack where I think coaches like Gerard Gallant and most coaches in the NHL lie, where you could slide pretty, uh, you can slide. They're interchangeable. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they all have their own style. They all have their own unique viewpoints and their own ideas that they bring to the table. But ultimately from game to game in, if you needed a coach in game six, of the conference finals, you could have put Jar Gallant behind the bench. You could have put anybody else you wanted to behind the bench. Bruce Boudreaux maybe would have gotten a goal, but maybe the Rangers would have gotten scored on more because that's Bruce Boudreaux for you. But like, or because Brucey unfortunately can't win in the in the playoffs, maybe they would have lost anyway. But it, it, whoever you whoever you decide to put in that middle space probably achieves the same result as Gerard Gallant did. And then there's that bottom tier where they just they can't get much done and they get the opposite done where there's a, a a team that is there to potentially go far in the playoffs or achieve some kind of success and they vastly underachieve and I don't want to put Pete DeBoer on the spot because he just got a new coach he got, just got a new gig with the Dallas Stars but the Vegas Golden Knights are a great example where he came in and there the the idea was okay well Alex Petrangelo is coming you have stars on this team that are capable of achieving greatness potentially. They didn't make the playoffs. Yeah. So whether that be on Pete DeBoer or the or the the players collectively, like that's I'm not saying anything negative about Pete DeBoer in this space right now. But like there's there's three different tiers of NHL coaching and John Cooper and and coach Jared Bednar as well. We should mention him because right now his team is an absolute wagon. Those two are at the top echelon of NHL coaching. Yeah, hockey coaching is very weird because it's not like baseball where you got to make pitching changes. It's not like basketball where you got to have a good feel for your rotation and know when to slam a timeout when a game is getting a little bit away from you. The the input a hockey coach has during the course of a game, it's not a ton. Like the deployment, yeah, but even then so much of the changes are on the fly where once you kind of get into a routine, unless it's a playoff game, then you kind of got to be a little bit more on top of that. But for the most part, a hockey coach doesn't have a ton of input in the outcome of a game because there's not really anything for them to call. Hockey teams play one system, one style. It's not like football where the game plan changes week to week. It's not like basketball where you go with what's working for you, etc. It's not like baseball where you're calling pitches from the dugout. A hockey coach isn't telling, okay, you go this way, you go that way. Unless you're drawing up something on the whiteboard for the power play, that's a little bit different. But for the most part, there's not a ton of input for them to have. It's more managing of personalities, which is something, for the most part, everything we know that Gerard Gallant is supposed to be very good at is managing personalities, keeping everybody loose. And he annoys me with the way he talks to the media, but it is a concerted strategy to put the attention on him and not the team, which in a vacuum is a good thing because the team isn't as worried about it. The coaching gets done before games, in between games, and after games. Coaching does not happen 
in the middle of the second period, right? Like uh, these things don't happen on a whim whenever Jar Gallant decides are going to happen, right? The, the the biggest adjustment that John Cooper made for Tampa Bay after game two, which is why I think he's one of the best coaches in the, in the world, is that he collectively made the tweak. He said, okay, Panarin loves getting into the zone stopping at the blue line and looking for a cross seam pass. He loves doing that. What we're going to do is I'm sure he's telling the guys in the video room, this like, this is, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a video room. You know, I'm not in one, unfortunately, although maybe once we get the budget for it, we'll talk about it, but I'm sure he is in the video room to his team saying, you know, here's an example of Panarin stopping at the blue line, making that cross seam pass. Here's what we're going to do to make sure that never happens to against us again for the remainder of these playoffs. And what do you know? Panarin was a no-show for the four, for the four games the Rangers lost against the Lightning because what he did so well was stopped by the coaching of John Cooper and the video staff at the assistant coaching staff and his staff put together a plan and it worked beautifully. The Tampa Bay Lightning pretty much erased every five-on-five offensive opportunity for the Rangers before it even started and they cruised four straight games all the way to the cup final. So that is where coaching makes a difference with eight forty six to go in second period. When the game is just happening, it's not like Gerard Gallant is just, is making these calls in the, when the puck is going from, you know, two feet, 200 feet from one end to the other end. Like it, these things just don't happen. So John Cooper evidently, in, in this particular series, that's one thing that he did better than Gallantin because John Cooper made the adjustment, he made the tweak, and Gerard Gallant did not retaliate. Yeah. Okay. We got one more question, and then we will wrap up and send everybody off to game three. Why the cap crunch may not be as big a deal because the salary cap should rise in the very near future. Um... In theory, it raised yes. by one whole million. One whole million for next season. So, The players are still paying off escrow from two years ago. They had to make up a billion and a half dollar deficit, and they have been slowly doing that over the last two and a half years now. In theory, it should be paid off after the 2020, was it 22, 23, 23, 24? After the 2024, 2025 season is when the escrow should be fully paid off. And we could expect a realistic salary cap increase commiserate with revenue increases because the NHL says it just had its best revenue year ever. And I don't know how much I believe that. I know Gary Bettman and the NHL very much like to overestimate their revenue forecasts, and it's part of why the escrow system screws over the players so badly, because they consistently over-forecast revenues, and then when they don't meet those projections, the players have to make up the difference, and the NHL loves saying things are a lot better than they actually are. In an ideal world, in two years from now, and the cap goes up to something like $90, $95 million, yeah, then the Rangers wouldn't have to worry about it. We also just kind of assumed that was going to happen anyway. I, I wrote an article the summer of 2019, obviously a year before the pandemic, assuming by 2021, 2022, the salary cap would be approaching 
$100 million a year because of the new TV deals, which went into effect this year, the ESPN TNT deals, because that's what the NBA did. The NBA salary cap went up $20 million when their TV revenue doubled. The NBA TV revenue doubled. That's how the Warriors were able to sign Kevin Durant that summer. The revenue doubled and the salary cap went up an additional $30 million that year in the NBA. I was conservatively estimating the NHL salary cap could go up somewhere between 10 and $15 million uh, overall and then the additional one and a half two million dollar increases you were getting every year anyway and then the pandemic happened there is no way to know what is going to happen going forward especially with some of these teams like the senators like the coyotes that are in these kind of weird financial situations so ideal yes realistically you can't assume that's going to happen you can't bank on that happening that's how you get into a worse situation if you just assume the money is going to be there in two years because market factors are going to allow it to be there. That's how you get screwed. I mean, if the salary cap increased the way it was supposed to, the Trooper contract isn't bad. If if the salary cap was $91, $92 million instead of $81 million, the Trooper contract is a lot more manageable. It, it, you can't go assuming anything is going to go your way. You have to plan for every possible outcome. And I'm just never going to trust the NHL when it comes to things like Arvinu. Yeah, I that's you're totally right. Like there's if if the pandemic never happened and the cap would be near a hundred million dollars at this point, then Jacob Truba's contract is not being talked about. Right. If Jacob Truba was making eight million dollars and the pandemic never happened and the and the cap is twenty million dollars higher than it is now, it's not a topic of conversation. Get even with his cons, he he still has a lot of pros and the the situation wouldn't be as dire or dire enough to to talk about him potentially getting moved this summer or whatever, but because the pandemic happened and there's been a flat cap for a couple of years now and the cap is only going up by a million dollars, that creates a big problem for the rest of the team and well for the rest of the league really, but for the Rangers specifically, the Rangers signed Jacob Trouba to that big contract thinking oh well the cap is going to increase by a tremendous amount you got the TV deal it wouldn't be. Uh, a, a huge issue if Jacob Truba doesn't maybe make up, maybe doesn't earn every single penny of that contract because we will we're going to have the cap flexibility to be okay with that. Well, obviously nobody thought that there would be a worldwide pandemic that wiped out, you know, a lot of time and a lot of uh, people, unfortunately, like there's the, the pandemic ruined, ruined so many different things and, Nobody predicted that this would have uh, that the NHL would just kind of have a flat cap for this whole time. So now this creates a problem where you have all these top guys that need more money. Well, where are you going to get that money from? There's 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 no twenty million dollar rise in the cap that was projected to be here by now. Yeah. So you have all these you have a lot of guys that need money and not a whole lot of space to give it to them. All right, that'll do it. I still have two questions in there, but one of them is a longer form topic that I want to save for the next episode because I think it would really lend itself to a good 10, 15 minute conversation. So we got parting shots. You want to go first or you want me to lead off, Andrew? All yours, baby. Okay. Sometime next week, we are going to have the NHL awards. Igor Shesterkin is going to win the Vezina Trophy. He should win the Hart Trophy as well. He is not going to because it is impossible for a non-forward to win the Hart Trophy. It does not happen. It has happened two times in the last 20 years, a goalie and a defenseman, twice in the last 20 years. I do not think 
the greater hockey public understands just how good Shesterkin was this year. For the average hockey fan who only saw the Rangers when they played their team twice or four times, if your team is in the Metropolitan Division, I do not think you understand how ridiculous saving 93.6% of every single shot you faced in all situations is. How ridiculous saving 36 goals above expected at five on five is just how vital Shesterkin was to the team's success in a way that just doesn't happen anymore because you should not be able to play goalie as good as Shesterkin did this season. Shesterkin just had a season better than any season Henrik Lundqvist had as a Ranger. Of course, there's something to be said for longevity versus peak, but that's just the point I'm trying to make here. This was a superb season, one that will be remembered among stat nerds like me forever because nobody sniffs. In most years, the leader in goals saved above expected is in the mid to high 20s, and Shesterkin saved 36 goals above expected this past season. The Rangers are going to need to figure out the rest of the team around Igor because he will not be the best goalie of all time every single season for the rest of his career. It is unrealistic to expect him to be Superman 60 starts a year. They will need to manage him. He has shown the... He has shown that he is occasionally worse for wear. He has pulled a groin two years in a row, which Larry Brooks very famously wrote the week after they signed him to that long-term extension for five by five and a half, which looks very good, by the way, in hindsight now. But going forward, the Rangers will need to make Igor's life easier. And if they can do that, they can really tap into just how good this guy is because those kind of goalies don't grow on trees, man. That was a once in a decade type season from a goaltender. And those are so rare. And the last point I'm going to make before I throw it to Andrew, I did the math the last week of the regular season. If Shesterkin is three quarters as good as he was this regular season, the Rangers would have lost eight more games in the regular season. Eight more games if he gives up just one more goal over the course of 15 one-goal games. Eight more losses, and then you're very much in a wild-card spot and not second in the Metropolitan Division. So this one might surprise some Rangers fans, but I think the one highlight, uh, well, one of the many highlights that Chris Jury had over the trade deadline was bringing in Justin Braun, and I kind of wouldn't be opposed to bringing him back. Because here's the thing. Justin Braun was paired with 20-year-old Brain Schneider. And those, whenever those two were on the ice, nothing happened. Which, is a, which as a defenseman, that's kind of the best case scenario. Unless, unless you're offensively gifted, in which case you want to see some offense from your defenseman. But if neither, if neither defensemen are very skilled with, with puck movement and, and puck carrying ability and, and shooting and all, doing all these things, the best thing for, to, for your defenseman is to have nothing happen. And that ex- that's exactly what happened when Schneider was paired with Justin Braun on that third pair all throughout the playoffs. You didn't really notice them. And that's really good, if, especially if you're, the, if you're the third pairing on an Eastern Conference final playoff team. With ju- just what Justin Braun did with Brayden Schneider 
there was he provided stability. He provided that calm attitude because he's what he's 35 years old and he played better than I think anybody expected him to. He he wasn't a top two bona fide incredible defenseman that ate 40 minutes and did like that's not that's not where I'm saying. But as a sixth defenseman, even as a seventh defenseman, if you wanted to see if Zach Jones or somebody like that could could beat him come opening night, I would I would very much be on board with bringing back Justin Braun and having him be that mentor type for Brian Schneider. This dude's 20 years old. And when they, those two were on the ice, nothing bad happened. And that's kind of the best case scenario when it comes to your fifth and sixth best defenseman, because when Patrick Nemeth was on the ice, everybody was holding their breath. Everybody was like, Oh God, uh, it's, the Rangers going to get scored on again. Look, he's out on the ice again. And, and again, like, I don't want to, I don't want to trash Patrick Nemeth too bad because as we mentioned in the last episode, there were numerous times over the course of the season where Patrick Nemeth had to step away from the team. Clearly something happened over the course of October to now that, that made Patrick Nemeth either not focus enough or there was something going on behind the scenes that, that Rangers don't want to be public, which is fine. In, in this particular instance, this is clearly a personal issue for Patrick Nemeth. Whatever it is, we just hope that he's okay and that the, you know his, his family, everybody else is okay. So if you don't want to play him and you, and you need a, a defenseman that is stable and can bring some kind of, of mentorship to a 20-year-old brain Schneider, Give me Justin Braun every day of the week. That would not be a bad idea. I would be very much open to bringing Braun back. The only thing you got to get in that you worry about with him is once you turn 35, your contract's fully guaranteed. So you kind of can't do any chicanery with it. So if they bring him back one year, please, that's all I ask. One year. Yeah. One, yeah. one times one, one times 1.1, like yeah. some, somewhere in that range is perfect for a six defenseman. He provide like, again, like when those two are on the ice, I wasn't, sweating bullets thinking that there was about to be a goal against, uh, which is exactly what you need from your bottom pair. Wow. We finished at eight Oh six. We really on the nose. We did a really good considering we did not have the Twitch stream working until six twenty five, And we started at six thirty. We did pretty good today, Andrew. Pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would chalk this up as a, as a phenomenal episode. If only, if only because we, we figured everything out right before and we got going and here we are and no issues. Fingers crossed. Hopefully the recording records and saves and zoom doesn't, you know, screw us over and things go our way. But I think this, I think this went better than we thought it would. Oh, absolutely. I was very worried at 625 when I was still trying to figure out how to get Zoom and Twitch to interwork with each other. So that'll do it for episode two of the Liberty Blue Pod. We will be back next week. Maybe we'll be talking about the offseason fully because the series might be over by then. Where can they follow us, Nick? Where can they see us? Uh, we're everywhere. Uh, I'm, we're on Twitch, obviously, if you've been watching live. We're on YouTube, where this episode will be in full. I'm going to start editing this as soon as I hang up the call here with Andrew. On Twitter, we're on Instagram. We'll do pullouts for Instagram and Twitter so people can kind of get a little bit of snippets, a little bit of flavors. I'm at Nick Zararis, N-I-C-K-Z-A-R-A-R-I-S. He's Chelney Andrew on Twitter. Spell your last name for the people, Andrew, because I C H E L N E Y. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I like how you threw to me instead of trying to figure it out yourself. I like that, but you got it right. 
Yeah, I wanted to be sure. I wanted to be sure. Could have been an awkward moment, but I've typed your name a lot in the last... I've typed your name a lot in the last week to text you, so it's in my brain now. Hell yeah. All right, man. I'll see you next week. Uh, I guess go Avalanche. I don't really care who wins. Yeah. Just give me one good hockey game in this series. Just one more good hockey game before hockey's done. That's really all I want. Yeah, I. well, I mean, maybe the series goes seven. We don't know, but that would be fun to watch, wouldn't it? It would be. Who knows? We'll see what happens. We will. Puck drop is, it says 8 o'clock, but it's 8.08 now. probably be like 8.45. <laughs> we still got to do the anthems and all that. Yeah, all right. Yeah. That'll just about do it for this week's episode. We will see you guys next week. Be safe. Have a good week.